Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tsideros, leader of HRI's Regulatory Center with us. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining again. And I'm really excited about today because I think we're going to cover a lot of great topics for our audience. But first up is actually a little history lesson. And obviously, there's a lot in the news about the president getting COVID. But um, this isn't the first time in history, right, that one of our presidents has had a pandemic. No, no, actually, interestingly, we've been hearing a lot about the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919. And President Woodrow Wilson actually came down with flu during that pandemic, during the 1919 Paris Peace Conference talks. And there's a great quote from author John Barry's book on that pandemic. He wrote, talking about Colonel Starling of the Secret Service, he said, Colonel Starling of the Secret Service noticed that President Woodrow Wilson lacked his old quickness of grasp and tired easily. He became obsessed with such details as who was using the official automobiles. When Ray Stannard Baker was first allowed to see Wilson again, he trembled at Wilson's sunken eyes, at this weariness, at his pale and haggard look, like that of a man whose flesh has shrunk away from his face, showing his skull. So President Wilson got really ill. He survived, of course, but but it was a sort of an example of how viruses, you know, they 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 don't care who you are. You can get sick no matter who you are, and uh, and we're seeing that today in the United States as well. Well, there's a lot you can learn from history, but also for those uh, listeners that have been with us for a while, a lot you can learn from other parts of the world as well. And I think that's where we should go next. And one of the things that we try to do is look at what's happening in other countries or other geographies. And if there's something we can we can learn, that could be helpful for us here in the U.S. And so, Trina, could you take us to the Southern Hemisphere and keeping with that flu narrative, what are we seeing down in the Southern Hemisphere regarding flu season? Yeah, yeah. So speaking of flu, one of the big questions has been with all of the mitigation measures that everybody around the world is taking, masking, social distancing, people staying home from work if possible, you know, will this have an impact on the flu season? And I should add to that, actually, also the closing of borders that the travel, sort of international travel, of course, has sort of ground to a halt in a lot of ways. And so the question has been, you know, is that going to have an impact on the flu season? and also on the transmission of other respiratory viruses. And in the Southern Hemisphere, this past summer is for us in the in the United States is their winter and it's flu season. And so now we are getting a look at what has happened there. And there's a study that just came out looking at Western Australia, in particular children in winter 2020 in Western Australia. And there has been an enormous reduction in the transmission of RSV, a respiratory virus often found in children, and a huge reduction in influenza detections also in children in Western Australia. And so it looks like the flu season and the RSV season are really much more mild than they would have been in previous years. And they attribute that in part to the closed borders and mandatory quarantine for arrivals starting in March in Australia, that basically the virus, which kind of migrates around the globe over you know, season to season, 
didn't have a chance to get hold, I guess, in Australia is what they're surmising. And then that all the mitigation measures also might be having an impact. So, you know, in the United States, we're looking at this possibility of a twindemic, you know, with influenza and COVID-19 occurring around the same time in the in the winter. And this calls into question that maybe we won't have as bad of a flu season as we might have had otherwise. You know, it's, it's hard to predict the future, obviously, but that's one of the questions. And this gives us some hope that maybe that's what's going to happen is that we might have a very mild flu season, which of course is what we would want. Well, maybe something to learn for the long term in terms of masking and social distancing and, and hand washing that, you know, even when the, the COVID pandemic hopefully will be done, that it's good habits to have for a lot of different types of transmittable diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these, one, I guess one question that you could ask is once this pandemic passes, whether some of the habits that we will all have grown so accustomed to, like wearing a mask, especially when you're sick, hand washing, these kinds of things, whether that will linger and, and help dampen the transmission of other viruses as well. It's a good question and we'll see. The other part of the pandemic that we've been covering over time is the economy and what's happening with people in terms of layoffs. And in the United States, employers actually provide a lot of insurance for people. Over 155 million active employees are insured through their companies. But with the layoffs, the question becomes, where do people go to get insurance and how do they keep their access to our healthcare system? And there's some numbers out regarding Medicaid and CHIP enrollment. And I was hoping you could kind of break down what are those new numbers showing and what that might mean. Yeah, yeah. So CMS put out some new data and it shows us what we've been hearing for several months that even though the number of people who have lost their jobs has skyrocketed and continues to be very high, that the Medicaid and CHIP enrollment has not also skyrocketed, at least not yet. Starting in March, we started to see a slow uptick in Medicaid and CHIP enrollment. Right away, right after the lockdowns, we saw just a 0.4% increase in Medicaid and CHIP enrollment. And then the next month, April, 2%. And then May, 1.6%, and June, 1.6%. So these are small increases compared to the huge blossom of people who have lost their jobs and presumably also lost their employer-sponsored insurance. At least some percentage of them have lost their employer-sponsored insurance. And so there's been a lot of questions about why we haven't seen a real surge yet in Medicaid and CHIP enrollment. And some of that is because people don't tend to sign up right away like they would for unemployment benefits. They might sign up once they get sick, or they might sign up once they get to the hospital, if they are sick enough to end up in the hospital, and the hospital will help them to sign up for Medicaid and CHIP. So this is this is continuing to sort of climb, climb, climb a couple of percentage points a month, and we'll see where it goes. But it's been a little bit of a surprise over the pandemic that this really hasn't blossomed like we thought it would. And for state budgets, this is probably good news because states are really suffering in terms of their finances. And so having a huge surge in Medicaid enrollment would be even more of a strain. 
it's interesting because, you know, better for state budgets, but of course we have the hospitals and health leaders who have really been struggling in many areas because they don't have as many patients, they're not getting reimbursed. And of course, as more people become uninsured, it, it creates big problems for them. So I think, you know, I love what you mentioned that, you know, hospitals and physician offices and clinics, it really, they, they really are incentivized to help people find an insurance program that they can enroll in. And I, you know, I think the other thing that it kind of brings up the question around is people often, as you mentioned, they're not going to sign up unless there's something that's acute happening to them. That does bring up the question of how are we managing their overall health? Are we keeping them healthy when they don't have insurance, they don't have access, or are we just really addressing it when something much more acute happens and they show up at the emergency room? Yeah. Yeah, that's been a question all through the pandemic has been the disappearance of people from emergency rooms and the worry that these might be folks who actually did need care who now will end up you know, with more expensive and severe illnesses down the road. Or it could be that there were a lot of unnecessary visits that happened before the pandemic that aren't happening now. And I think it's probably a mix, but eventually someone will tease that out and it'll be interesting to see what actually um, has been occurring. For our last topic, let's go into our therapeutics update, or as I like to say, our our science section for non-science majors. So what are we seeing in terms of some of the innovations out there in treatments? Yeah, well, let's start with what are hospitals using on COVID-19 patients? And that has changed enormously since March. Edion puts out some great data on this, and that's what I'm looking at right now. And what it does is, is it plots out the usage of various medications in hospital. And so we have everything from acetaminophen to a low molecular weight heparin, which is better known as a blood thinner, to azithromycin, to hydroxychloroquine to remdesivir and dexamethasone and convalescent plasma. So all sort of the suite of possible treatments for COVID-19. And if you look at this graph, it has sort of the rising and falling fortunes of all of these different treatments. And I think the one thing to point out, obviously, we, we are not surprised that, say, hydroxychloroquine enjoyed a lot of popularity at the beginning of the pandemic. But then once it was clear, it was not super useful for COVID-19 patients. It fell out of favor and um, now is used uh, very little. But then you see the rise of, say, dexamethasone after studies showed that it had some potential to improve the health of very severely ill COVID-19 patients. It rose in popularity in hospital and it's used quite a bit. And also remdesivir, which kind of puttered along for a while despite the sort of positive studies about it. Potentially, Actually, we, we think perhaps that's because of just a lack of access to it. There wasn't a lot available. But now it has risen up starting in um, sort of July. It started to rise and it is being used, um, sort of been on a plateau, I'd say, since beginning of August. So remdesivir is being used um, more often. And then the low molecular weight heparin also has been used quite a bit right now because of the worries about clotting issues in COVID-19 patients that are in the hospital. So really interesting to sort of see physicians kind of figure out what to use, what isn't useful, and you can just see it all play out on this one graph. Anything on overall numbers of therapeutics? I think that was a great breakdown of what's being used 
for treatment right now. But, you know, just in terms of numbers of what's in the pipeline. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's pretty astounding, actually. You know, if we think about a virus that we had no experience with a year ago, and now, according to a dashboard that we maintain at PwC, there are 290 therapeutics in phase one or beyond. And we're starting to see researchers move beyond just small molecules to other modes of treatment, such as antibodies and other kinds of treatments. So we're seeing um, sort of a diversity in approaches to treating COVID-19 and attacking the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Well, lots to be hopeful for there. The last small topic and, and I wanted to bring up is a lot in the news about these antibody cocktails. Anything you want to say about those? Yeah, yeah. So there are two that recently put out some data. So these treatments are a way to give patients who are sick with the SARS-CoV-2 virus a leg up essentially, in the fight against the virus. And so one of the antibody cocktails, as they put it, that's gotten a lot of uh, attention is a combination of two different antibodies against the, the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And this particular therapeutic is similar to this company's antibody candidate under review for the Ebola virus. So this company has been working on this for a while, and they are looking at how well this might work and how safe it is for hospitalized patients, for outpatients, for household contacts as sort of a preventative treatment. If someone in the household is sick with the virus, maybe you can, that the idea is perhaps giving it to household members might protect them. And there's also a study that they are doing for safety and again, another, another hospital study. So there's a lot of different uses for this that are being tested out. There are about 2,000 patients enrolled in these studies to date, and there have been no significant significant safety concerns noted yet. So so we're getting some data out on this particular treatment now. And I think one of the interesting pieces of this is that one of the readouts from a trial in hospitalized patients found that the cocktail seemed to work best in patients that had higher viral loads and were seronegative. In other words, they did not seem to be mounting a significant immune response detectable by a serology test compared to other patients. And those are the ones that seem to do the best with this cocktail. So we'll see. These are still early data. The company has put out a bunch of information on their website. So you can go and look at what they're seeing. Not a lot of severe adverse events have been reported. So, you know, looking hopeful, looking very hopeful. There's another company as well, looking at an antibody treatment for COVID-19. They are in phase two, the mid dose, the sort of the medium dose met the primary endpoint of reducing viral loads at day 11 from baseline in mild to moderate patients. Um, so, so they're working forward. And, and so this might be a, another treatment that we might end up with that will help fight the virus in, in various different ways. So like I said, these companies are looking at this not just for severely ill patients, but in some cases for folks that are just moderately ill and, um, and you know, maybe being seen by a doctor in an outpatient basis, or even 
I think this is one of the more interesting ones as a preventative for patients that that have been exposed to the virus, might be living with someone with the virus, but absolutely cannot get sick, right? So folks that are at high risk, maybe you could imagine a young person coming home sick with SARS-CoV-2 and living with an elderly grandparent. You'd want, maybe want to be able to give that grandparent a protective dose of, of this antibody, one of these antibody cocktails as a way to protect them against, you know, eventually developing potentially a, a fatal case of COVID-19. So these are some of the things that we're seeing being developed. And like I said, this this is sort of a, these are examples of different modes of therapy that are being explored and and we'll see we'll see where it goes. Well, I think the important thing for our listeners is that there's more than one thing going on uh, simultaneously in terms of innovation. So it's not just the vaccine development, but as you walked us through a lot of therapeutics and and, and some therapeutics, quote, cocktails or multiple ones mixed together um, as well. So lots, lots there. TBD, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our listeners up with it as we go along. Trina, thank you once again for joining us and providing a great history lesson, a bit of what's happening in different parts of the world. We covered what's happening with insurance coverage, especially Medicaid in the U.S., and then, of course, our science update with therapeutics. So thank you for joining us. Sure. For those that want more information, everything we talk about, we have typically deeper dives available on our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And this is Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.